This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. And let me pray as we begin. Father in heaven, may everything I say be faithful and true to your word, and may it have impact in lives because your word is powerful, living, and active. It enlivens the heart. It enlightens the eyes. Do your work today by your spirit to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, actually, in light of what's happened so far in the service today, what I'm going to talk about kind of fits, because I want to talk about plans and ambitions and dreams. So, we've seen a young man who has an ambition to go study for ministry and be a pastor. Uh, The church has an ambition to plant more churches, which is a wonderful ambition. There are other people here who have ideas of what they would love to do for the Lord, want to be missionaries. Church wants to send more missionaries, and we have have these dreams. But it's not just ministry where we can have a dream to serve the Lord. I, I genuinely believe that creating a business that employs others, provides valuable goods and services to people, is also serving God. And it's people who have done well at that that paid for this building. It's not the people passing out chicken biscuits, actually. Um, I know we have a lot of students here. And some of you who are younger, you have an ambition to get into certain schools. If you really wanted to go for it, you go to Baylor, where Carolyn and I went. But I hear UT is okay also. Um, But you want to get into the school of your choice. You want to do the major of your choice. Or you have an ambition to have a certain kind of career, if if you can go to medical school, all the different things we want to do. Uh, You want a family someday. You would like to get married. And I believe that having dreams and ambitions is a good thing. But we're going to look at a passage today which sometimes can temper our dreams and ambitions a bit. We've also talked, we had the Lord's Supper, about uh, covenant. And we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is the chapter that records one of the most important covenants in the Bible, which is the Davidic covenant, as God covenants with David ultimately to bring forth the Messiah. And uh, it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture, and I love especially Old Testament narrative. And I want to tell you a few things I like to do when I'm studying Old Testament narrative or preaching Old Testament narrative, and it might help you when you read the Old Testament as well. I want to do at least three things in when I'm reading the Old Testament. And sometimes some of you may find the Old Testament a little bit confusing. So Point one is you just need to understand what's going on. And because they were under a different covenantal situation and a different world from us, we need to get that. In the context here, David is king over Israel. Uh, He's coming into a time of rest and peace. Uh, The promises God had made to Abraham and through Moses are beginning to be fulfilled in the nation. Uh, We're not living in a holy nation now. The church is the holy nation, not the United States or anybody else right now. And so our our context is different, and we need to understand what's going on with David. The second thing we want to do is we want to see how these things apply to us now. Even though we live in a different age, the New Testament says these things were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages have come. So there's lots of practical application in the Old Testament. We're going to see that today. That'll be one of my focuses. But then also, we want to see Jesus Christ and the gospel, because that is the subject of the Bible from beginning to end. And in Luke 24, when Jesus had been raised, he, he was talking to his disciples, and it says he went through the entire Old Testament and showed how all of it points to him. 
So those are the three things I want to do today and that I would always want to do when I'm in the Old Testament. Now, the context here, and I'm going to work my way through the passage gradually, but if you've gone through First and Second Samuel, there's been this kind of yearning for Israel coming out of the days of the judges to have to be finally established without the Philistines and all the other problems surrounding them. They'd been an oppressed nation for so many years. And really, as we come to chapter 7, it's the fulfillment of what they'd been yearning for for centuries. As David is on the throne as a righteous king and the enemies have been subdued. So beginning in verse 1, Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Now, as we describe, we see in verse 1, it describes that David has gained rest. Israel has gained rest. And this is something quite remarkable. It's remarkable because back in Deuteronomy and other places in the Old Covenant, rest was a covenant promise that God said, one day you will have rest in the land. But if you've been reading up until now through the Judges and First and Second Samuel, there's not been rest. They've been attacked from every side. There's been civil war. And, and now, even for David, he was hiding in caves and being chased around uh, by Saul. Now he has gained rest. The neighbors, the enemy nations have been subdued. And this covenant hope of Israel is being established. And it's something wonderful. Of course, rest is an important word in the New Testament. In Hebrews, we're told that Christ has come to bring us our ultimate rest, is the one greater than David. And so what does David want to do with the rest that God has given him? Well, he wants to build the temple. He wants to build a house for the ark of God, which represents his presence. That the ark of God, it's been the tabernacle, it's been a portable representation of God's presence, but He's even kind of saying, he almost feels embarrassed. I have a house of cedar, but God's house is still a tent. And so he has this ambition to make something special. And we know that's going to happen later. Now, this isn't just a wild idea on David's part. In the book of Deuteronomy, there was a promise, Deuteronomy 12, that one day when the nation had rest in the land, there would be a more permanent place of God's presence and worship established. Uh, in the psalm, uh, Psalm 132, David uh, expresses this very holy desire where he says he could give himself no sleep until there was established a place for the presence of God in Israel. Now, this makes David a very unusual Near Eastern king, okay? Contrast with Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. What does Nebuchadnezzar do when things are going his way? Is this not Babylon the great city that I have created for my own glory? And David's not that guy. He's a king at this point after God's own heart. Uh, he's not desirous of building monuments to himself, but rather he's saying with a psalm he wrote, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? That's great. He recognizes that his prosperity is only because God has been with him. And so he does something seems wise. We've talked a lot about counseling this weekend. He gets counsel. He goes to Nathan the prophet, and Nathan the prophet, here's David's ambition, said, go do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Now, he was right. The Lord is with David, 
This is the first appearance of Nathan. Next time he appears, it'll be under more sad circumstances. Now, if you've read ahead to the next verse, you'll realize Nathan's wrong. You say, well, how can a prophet be wrong? And I think this is an important point about prophecy in the Old Testament is that prophecy is infallible, but prophets aren't always prophesying. You know, if Nathan's wife asked him in the morning, think it's going to rain today? Yeah, I think it's going to rain today. He could be right, he could be wrong. He's not speaking, thus says the Lord, there's going to be rain today. But in this case, Nathan is rendering his own opinion, and it's going to be corrected by the Lord. Now, application. One thing would be, how do you handle prosperity? The psalm, sorry, in Proverbs 30, he says, give me neither poverty nor riches, you know, lest I be rich and forget God, lest I be poor and be tempted to steal. Have you ever prayed not to be too rich? That's a kind of an unusual prayer, but it's in the Proverbs. But by the way, we are the prosperous. You may say, oh, I'm a college student. I don't have much. You have probably a car. You have a place to live. You have food. Look at the history of the world. Look at the world around you. You have prospects of many things. We are the rich. And the temptation with riches is to take care of oneself like Nebuchadnezzar. And I think David's example is a great example for us as God has prospered you to use that prosperity to the glory of God. I've known people who have been successful in business and their ambition is to be more successful so they can give more away. And the great works of God, sending someone to the pastor's college, sending out missionaries, planting churches, is God has prospered you. He may have prospered you for the purpose of using that prosperity to his glory and not your own glory. And so David's example here is a very fine and biblical one. And something else I've seen is maybe the Lord brings you to a point in life where you don't have to work anymore. Well, to use your season of retirement as a season to serve God all the more, to be a volunteer, to, to do things to, to express gratitude to him. Uh, some of us, again, have gone through very busy, difficult seasons of life. You've raised your kids and you struggled financially. And finally, things have kind of settled down and there's less pressure. Well, again, That's not the season to take care of yourself only, but also, as the song says, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. God's blessing should make us desirous. As Paul says to Timothy, instruct those who are rich in this present world to be rich in good works. Another application is that counselors are sometimes wrong. (laughs) I speak as a counselor. Now, the Bible says it's good to seek counsel. In abundance of counselors, there is wisdom. And as you're thinking in terms of college and marriage and career and finances and ministry, it's good to get advice. But the advice people give us us has to be measured against the Word of God, which is our only infallible standard of authority. And in this case, a word comes later. You wonder if Nathan maybe should have been a little more caution and say, let me see, inquire of God to make sure that's a good idea. Might have been a bit embarrassed when the Lord says no and he has to go back to David uh, later. Uh, but this is something we need to be careful with is that, you know, counselors can give advice. And I want to say this, by the way, all of you are counselors according to scripture. All of us are giving each other advice. We're Romans 15, 14. Paul says, I'm convinced you're full of goodness, full of knowledge, able to encourage, admonish, counsel one another. It's very important for those of us who give counsel to distinguish between thus says the Lord and hey, this is my opinion. I can say thus says the Lord, don't marry an unbeliever. 
I can say, thus says the Lord, if a man will not work, now neither shall he eat. I can give an opinion, that girl looks pretty good. You might think about asking her out. That's not thus says the Lord, that's an opinion. It could be a wrong opinion. I could say, Amazon is hiring. You might look at that as a job. I, can't, I, I can tell you you should work. I can't tell you where to work. So I think it's very important. Also, as we listen to counsel, to distinguish between that which is explicitly biblical and that which there are other possibilities as well. So we have to weigh the advice we receive. So first point is, do you want to do something great for God? That's a good thing. But the second point is, your plan may not be God's plan. Continuing in verse 4. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So David's human plan, in this case, is corrected by divine revelation. Now Nathan is not just giving his opinion. Nathan is receiving a direct word from God. It's a very significant word from God. It's almost 200 words, one of the longest monologues in this part of the Old Testament. And the news is both bad and good. Actually, the good news is better than the bad news. But the Lord says, you're not the one to build the temple. And the Lord is saying what a lot of the rest of Scripture is saying. He's reminding us of his self-sufficiency. It's not like I'm homeless and I need your help here. I didn't tell you you had to do this. Um, I've been dwelling among my people as as a pilgrim. I'm not rebuking you uh, for not building me a house. And even when the temple is built, uh, Solomon acknowledges, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you, yet how much less this house which I have built. And so the Lord is reminding him of those truths. Elsewhere, uh, we're told in Scripture that the reason David was not chosen to build the temple is because he was a man of war, and Solomon came later consolidating the kingdom, and he had that privilege. And yet, while the Lord corrects David's ambition, he does so very gently, and probably my favorite word in this part is the word servant in verse 5. While David's dream is for now rejected, David himself is not. As we're going to see, God has something better for David. And even here, calling David the Lord's servant, that connects him to the great servants of the past. It connects him to Abraham and, and to Moses. But even more important, it connects him to the Messiah. When you get to the book of Isaiah, you have what's called the servant songs. Behold, my servant will prosper. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ humbled himself, being made a servant, according to Philippians 2. And as we continue also, when you get to verse 12, he says, when your days are complete and you lie down, uh, verse 13, he says, your son will build a house for my name. So your idea is not wrong. I'm not rejecting your idea. It's just not going to be you. And I'm not rejecting you. I'm acknowledging you as my servant. And as we keep going, uh, what he blesses David with is absolutely overwhelming. So application. I asked you in the beginning, what are your dreams? What are your desires? What are your ambitions? There's nothing wrong with making plans. Proverbs 21.5, one of my favorite verses, the plans of the diligent lead to advantage. 
it's good to have great ambition. The reason why missions get sent and churches get planted is because you have ambitious people who, who want to do things. Paul said, my ambition is to go where the gospel has never been before. So ambition can be a good thing when we have these dreams. But God doesn't always choose to give us the dreams we have. I teach in a seminary, and we have students who come who have plans to be missionaries, to be campus workers, to be pastors, to be counselors. And I also was involved in seminary in California before I came here. And over the years, I've seen many of those desires and ambitions fulfilled, but there have also been wonderful godly students who came with one plan in mind and that did not work out that way. I've had students who have graduated from seminary and now are lay elders doing other jobs, making a great contribution to the church, but that's not really what they thought was going to happen when they were in seminary. I've had two sets of friends who are very dear to me who wanted to be missionaries in very hard places, and one wanted to go to a hard country in Southeast Asia, another uh, Kazakhstan, which is not a place I would even like to visit, much less live. And yet, as they pursued that, the Lord did not bring together the circumstances and the finances of them to do that. They had surrendered their lives and they devoted a couple of years of their lives trying to make it happen, and it didn't happen. That doesn't mean God doesn't love them, but it can be hard. I've known of single folk who just always figure, well, I'll get married and I'll have a family someday, and some people go a long time and don't find somebody. Or people get married and they plan to have kids and the Lord does not give them children. And that, that can be really hard. And so the reality is that not all of our plans are God's plan. And a caution would be just because you feel it very strongly. I think David felt this very strongly. That doesn't make it God's plan for sure. Some people think strong feelings are the leading of the Holy Spirit. It could be the Holy Spirit moving you. It could be a strong feeling like David had that God has something else for you. And even counsel, you may say, oh, well, my pastor's told me to do this, or my, all my friends think it's a great idea. Could be. They might be right, but it's, it's not a guarantee. Nathan, probably best counselor you could have found at that time, and yet Nathan in this case was wrong. And so we have to hold our plans and our desires, our ambitions very loosely. You, know, you have the example in James 4, you have men who want to do a business. And I don't think it was wrong for them to want to do a business. It was wrong for them to arrogantly do it without considering God. And, and James says, it's, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Uh, again, we could think of so many other examples. But then positively, because our God is sovereign and he works all things together for good, for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose, you have to trust that if God does not fulfill your ambition and your dream, his plan is better than your plan. Amen. And so, a couple of applications. Uh, one is just a reminder, and that's kind of what David was reminded, God doesn't need you. I imagine your senior pastor has had to learn that through his hard experiences lately, that when he can't be here and do everything after medical problems, that the church doesn't rest on one person. It moves forward under the leadership of Christ and the Spirit, and that can be encouraging in many ways. That you know, we, we can get that idea almost to great self. God is going to accomplish his great purposes. Now, we want to be part of that, but we're not, he, he's self-sufficient. No one is 
puts God in, in their debt. And then, again, as we have these desires, um, we have to be submissive to his sovereign will, which we cannot know with certainty. So do you want to do something great for God? Good. But realize that your plan may or may not be God's plan. But then the third point is the happiest, and that is that rather than you doing something for God, what really counts is what God has done for you. And there's a play on words, and it's interesting, in the Hebrew, the word house has the same kind of double meaning it does in English. A house can be a building people live in, but a house can also be a dynasty. And so David wanted to build a physical building house for God. And then you go down to verse 11, and he says, I will give you rest from your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. And so this is tremendously ironic, almost humorous. As David says, I'm going to build a house for God. And God says, no, you're not. I'm going to build a house for you. And the Davidic covenant is so much better than getting to build the temple. And we don't have time to cover this section exhaustively, but it's, it's a declaration that is one of the most significant in Scripture. And just reading in verse 8, and as I read this, actually, Bruce Walke, the Old Testament scholar, says, in this declaration of the Davidic covenant, there are ten blessings promised. There are three that are directly for David, there are four that are directly for Solomon, and there are three that are more remote. All of it is pointing to Christ. And so, verse 8, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who live on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. In accordance with all these words, all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. And so, kind of summarizing that, he's saying, God is saying, I've already done great things for you. I took you from tending sheep as the forgotten son to be the ruler of all Israel. I've given you victory over your enemies. I've delivered you from those who have uh, tried to kill you. I've made, already David's name was great, and here we are talking about him 3,000 years later, is one of the great men who have ever lived. And he says, when you're gone, I'm going to continue to bless your dynasty, your house, that Israel will be established in the land, and you'll have a descendant who will build the temple. And what's going on here? Of course, there, there are things there, when you heard me read it, I hope you're thinking, you know, that doesn't quite fit Solomon. And I've read First and Second Kings, 
And some of that's there and some of it's not there. And of course, there's only one way this makes sense, and that's it all points to Christ. The everlasting dynasty isn't the one you read about in First and Second Kings. First and Second Kings is a record of God's faithfulness to his covenant in spite of the unfaithfulness of, of Israel. And it's through that he finally brings the king who will reign forever and who will fulfill all the promises to David. But can you imagine how wonderful it would be to be David and to hear this? That you wanted to build a house for me? I'm, through you, there's going to be an everlasting king and an everlasting kingdom where there will be everlasting rest. And one other significant part, when you read a few chapters later, this is kind of David's high point. And things are going to, you know what's going to come later in Bathsheba and everything. But he says, I will not remove the kingdom from you like I did Saul. David deserved later to have the kingdom removed. But God kept his promise in spite of David's unfaithfulness. And so these promises are fulfilled in history. Israel is established as a world power. When Solomon reigns, he builds the temple and even acknowledges that the temple was being built in fulfillment of God's promise to David. He says, now the Lord has fulfilled the word which he spoke. I have risen in the place of my father David. And, and so Israel is a world power for a while. And David's dynasty rules over Judah for over 400 years. But God chastises them. God disciplines them. Uh, they get pushed around a little bit, and finally they get exiled. And you might think, well, that's it, right? I mean, they've been wiped out. They've been sent off to Babylon. Uh, God must be done with them. No, God still had this promise. And Psalm 89 is a recollection. It's kind of a restating of the Davidic covenant. And there are places in the prophets, even in the darkest days, or when, when Israel is an oppressed uh, not even a power, but just this abreast, oppressed backwater under the thumb of the, the Romans or the Babylonians or the Persians. And in the midst of that, there was a warning, the Lord of hosts will lop off the boughs with a terrible crash. It's like cutting off uh, the limbs of the tree. But then from the stump of that which appeared to be dead, uh, God brings forth new life. It says, then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Amos 9.11. In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And so even though Israel is unfaithful and even though they get wiped out almost as a nation, and you get these genealogies in the New Testament. You go, who are all those people in Matthew and Luke? They're the people that demonstrate God kept his promise. When Israel was no longer a great power, there's nobody like Solomon on the throne Yet still that messianic line comes all the way through. You get to the New Testament and the prophecy is given to Mary. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And so God sends his son. Christ is the perfect servant who actually is not chastised for his own iniquities, but is chastised for our iniquities. He is the true son of God. And he builds an indestructible house. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God's temple still stands and will stand until he returns. He reigns on David's throne and his kingdom will be forever. And this matters to us today. Uh, it matters to us today because, as already has been mentioned uh, by Pastor Bill, is that we live in times that for Christians appear to be dark. We live in times in which 
the enemies are overrunning us, in which Christians around the world are suffering to some degree, and we worry about how our freedoms may be affected in our own culture. Some already may have lost jobs or been kept out of programs in school because of their faith in Christ. It may get worse. We certainly don't seem to be on the ascent to take over the world, do we? We're getting pushed down. And there could be darker times than we now have. But just as Israel in the very darkest days still had the promise that one day from this stump is going to be a shoot and Messiah did come then, in the same way, no matter how hard things are in this life, no matter how oppressed and few Christians may be, Jesus Christ is coming again. Now he reigns in heaven. He will come and establish his kingdom and there will be a new heavens and the new earth and the nations of this world will be no more, and he will reign in glory. And if, if God could keep that promise to David in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness and oppression, God will also keep that promise for us. Every promise he gives us, and actually the scripture says they're now ours in Christ. We can trust his promises to us. Another application would be God's faithfulness to us should encourage us to be faithful to the promises we make. God was faithful to Israel and they didn't deserve it. We talked on Friday night about marriage and challenges. Marriages are not always easy. Marriage is probably that thing in life that we most explicitly refer to as a covenant. And in a good marriage ceremony, we don't just say, hey, as long as it's cool and easy, stick with it for better, for worse, rich or poor, sickness and health, until God by death shall separate you, is that to take our promises and our covenants seriously and to keep them even when it's hard. And not just that promise, but Psalm 15 verse 4 says, the righteous man swears to his own hurt and keeps his word. That we, as God is a God who keeps his promises and his word, we should be like him in that respect. So, in summary, this chapter begins with David wanting to do something great for God by building a physical house, but God says, no, I'm going to build your house, your dynasty, far beyond what you could have imagined. And, and David, you know, his response is, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Has God done great things for you? I used to live in the Middle East. I actually used to live 60 miles from Mecca. And I've also been in other places in the world that were very religious. And something that strikes me that every religion in the world but one is about what you do for God. Have you prayed enough? Have you given enough money? Have you gone on pilgrimage? Have you even, you know, harmed yourself, deprived yourself, fasted? Have you done enough for God? Have you kept enough rules? By the way, the answer to all that is no, you haven't. Repeatedly, the scripture says, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The only religion in the world, which is the only true religion in the world that takes a different stance is biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity says it's not about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for you. That Christ came. Christ died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. We're not, we're not brought to God by our own effort, our own goodness. Christianity is all about what God has done for us. That's what we've been singing about and praying about and reading today. 
And one of the great barriers to some people coming to faith in Christ is they keep thinking, I've got to do something for God. I've got to do enough for God. And it's humbling for God to say, your best and most righteous deeds are no better than filthy rags. Cast aside your self-righteousness. Repent of your sin. And look to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David, who came as the servant of God and bore in his body our guilt that all who believe in him will receive salvation as a free gift. And even for us as believers, we tend to go back to works. We tend to go back to think, well, God must be pleased with me according to how well I've done. No, God is perfectly pleased with you because you have a righteousness not of your own obtained from keeping the law, but the righteousness which comes from God by faith. And today we worship him not to gain more favor, but out of loving gratitude, just like David, who am I that I would be so blessed? That should be our attitude in worship. Who am I that God would do all this for me, though I've been nothing worthy for him? If you've never before acknowledged that there's nothing you can do to gain God's favor, if you've never looked to Christ, the scripture says, by grace you've been saved through faith. Not, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one should boast. Repent of your sin. Put your faith in what God has done in Christ. And by grace, he will save you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that every page points us to Christ. We thank you that it has practical meaning for us. We thank you and rejoice. Today, we're here not so much to do something for you, but to receive from you, even through the means of grace, more appreciation, more enjoyment of all you've done for us. Lord, if there's some here whose dreams have been shattered, help them to trust you that your ways are better. If there's some here who are living under the delusion that they could do enough, help them to repent of any hope of what they could do for you and look to what Christ has done. I pray in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.